take a moment and have another word of prayer before we go further. Heavenly Father, we ask even right now, God, that you would allow there to be just clarity today in exactly where you would have your people to focus. God, there's so much that's going on in this world that apart from the perspective that only you can bring by your spirit and through your word, then Lord, we're going to be focused on the wrong things. Fear will come creeping in when you've called us to walk in faith. God, our minds and our hearts and our gaze will be down when you've called us to be focused upon you and what you're doing. So Lord, we need you in order to help set our minds and hearts in the right direction. In Jesus' name, amen. So like many of you, uh, much of my attention during this last week has been focused on what's taking place in Israel as well as what is happening in the world around us. And I understand that information is literally changing by the minute, and I want to make sure that everybody who is listening, those who are watching online, there's at least a common base by which we are operating from. There are so many things that are changing, so many questions that are coming. I, I want to give maybe seven to eight minutes, and let's try to recap some of the major pieces that have just taken place within this last week. So October the 7th, 2023, will be remembered in history for all the wrong reasons. Around 6.30 a.m., a group of Palestinian militants led by Hamas launched a large-scale invasion of Israel from Gaza. In a span of about 20 minutes, Hamas launched around 3,000 rockets from Gaza into the nation of Israel. As the missiles came in from above, many of which were intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome, between 1,500 to 2,000 militants infiltrated the nation of Israel through trucks and motorcycles, bulldozers, speedboats, and paragliders. The terrorists then posted videos as they killed civilians and soldiers as they indiscriminately shot into crowds, as they took hostages, as they burned homes and property and people, and then they celebrated the pain that they inflicted. This attack coincided with a Jewish holiday that celebrates the end as well as the beginning of an annual cycle of Torah reading. As the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, and other rescue crews began to secure cities and assess what had happened, they found that there were at least 1,400 Israelis who had been murdered, over 3,400 that have been wounded, and upwards of 150 hostages that were taken. October the 7th, 2023 has been referred to as Israel's 9-11. It has been the deadliest day for Jewish civilians since the end of the Holocaust. Within hours of the invasion, it became clear that the actions of Hamas were not only approved but supported by Iran. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as Defense Minister Yohav Gallant, they conducted security assessments. They approved the mobilization of tens of thousands of reservists and they declared a state of emergency as well as a readiness for war. During the evening of October the 7th and in the early hours of October the 8th, 
the security cabinet formally declared that the nation of Israel was in a state of war. That is the first time that has happened since 1973 with the Yom Kippur War. That is 50 years ago has been the first time that's happened. The Israelis began a counteroffensive referred to as Operation Iron Swords. And like any sovereign nation, Israel has every right as well as the responsibility to protect its people and to protect its citizens. After warning that a response was coming, fighter jets began to hit targets through much of Gaza, including housing blocks, tunnels, mosques, as well as Hamas military compounds. Anticipating that there would be attacks from the north, the IDF also moved forces to the borders of Syria and Lebanon. In each of those areas, missiles have now been exchanged. This last week, the IDF has called back 360,000 reservists from around the world to not only defend the nation of Israel, but also to eliminate Hamas's military capabilities as well as to overthrow Hamas's rule throughout Gaza. The IDF has estimated that around 1,500 militant Hamas members have already been killed. And as of this morning, the civilian fatalities in Israel have exceeded 1,400 people, and there's now been another 2,300 Palestinian civilians who have been killed in the counteroffensive. Every bit of what I've just described should break the heart of believers. Within hours of the initial invasion, protests began in cities all around the world as well as on college campuses. A few days later, America stepped in showing and pledging its support for the nation of Israel. Uh, we found that within a moment of hours, literally, there was the, the deployment of a naval strike group into the eastern Mediterranean, including an aircraft carrier, a cruiser, as well as four other destroyers. As of yesterday, there is now a second carrier strike group that has been ordered to the same area. The Air Force has now increased fighter squadrons throughout the region. Over 2,000 Marines are on their way right now, and Congress is currently working on a $2 billion aid package. Leaders from other countries like Argentina, India, Taiwan, and most European nations have not only condemned the attacks of Hamas, but have expressed solidarity and support of the nation of Israel. Some of those have been sending military support, some sending humanitarian aid. Leaders also from the Arab League, countries like Oman, Yemen, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and non-Arab countries like Iran, Pakistan, and North Korea have all expressed support for the Palestinians. They blame Israel for occupying Palestinian territories and escalating the violence. The world is quickly taking sides and aligning behind countries and causes. Our 24-7 news cycles have inundated the world with information and images that have now led to questions that, quite honestly, most of us are not able to answer. We don't know yet. We're, we're still trying to figure things out in real time. But questions like, how did this happen? How could anyone commit such atrocities to children and women and innocent civilians? 
Did Israeli intelligence ignore credible threats? Is this the beginning of World War III? Where is this going to lead? How does it fit within Bible prophecy? What can we do as believers? How should we intentionally pray, not only for Israel as a nation, but also for innocent lives and bordering nations that are also going to be impacted? When is it going to stop? It has been an overwhelming It has been a sad, it has been a heavy week on so many different levels. Today marks the eighth day since the chaos began. As many of you know, I was originally scheduled to preach the final message in our series, It's Only God. But based on everything that is happening in Israel, based on how quickly our world has changed, based on the fact that believers are searching for answers and security has been stripped from so many people. Today, we're going to redirect where we're going. So as people in the next several weeks are going to be moving from immediate shock into the long-term implications of what this week has held, as people begin to wrestle through feelings of anxiety and worry and stress, As people are dealing with questions about God's will and about God's way and about God's prophetic timeline, I have prayed that God would give a message specific for this group for this morning so that we know how to process things through a biblical lens. And the word that God has brought to mind in this last week has been the word refuge. When the original attack came against Israel, people were scrambling for refuge. In the counteroffensives that have taken place throughout Gaza, people have been scrambling for refuge. As of this last week, as there were protests that were popping up on college campuses around the world, and as protests were happening in major cities, and as the FBI was warning people, don't go out in major cities because of terrorist possibilities. As those things are happening, here's what took place. People are looking for refuge. And so the question becomes, what do you do when your sense of security seems like it's gone? How do you process in real time when it seems like everything that you knew about the world and everything that made you secure and the places you felt the most comfortable, what do you do when that seems like it is gone within a moment? How can we learn to trust God, not just in theory, but in practice, that he is our refuge? I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today to the book's of Psalm chapter 62 will be in verse number 8. And then also we are going to be in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I am answering the question this morning, how do I run to God for refuge? Not just in theory, but in practice. When this is happening in your life, when your security is gone, when you feel vulnerable, what does it look like for people to run to God for refuge. This is what it says in Psalm chapter 62, verse number 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we, we ask again that you would guide us through an incredibly difficult, not only topic, but set of world events. Lord, may our heart be your heart all the way through. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is reality. We cannot control every situation. We cannot prevent every tragedy. We cannot avoid every crisis. And yet all of those things will disrupt our peace and they begin to rob us of a sense of security. According to scripture, it is very clear God is our refuge. There are dozens of passages saying exactly that throughout the book of Psalms into Proverbs, Nahum, 2 Samuel, all throughout the New Testament. The idea that God is our refuge simply means he is that safe place. He is the one that we run to at all times. He is the one who is not just our place of refuge in theory. He needs to be our place of refuge in practice. So how, does, how do we move beyond saying the statement, quoting the verse, into literally living in a place where God is our refuge, or another way of saying it is, how do I run to God for refuge? I, I'm going to give you a big idea, and we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking this. Here's the big idea. God becomes our refuge when we learn to trust him always and tell him everything. God becomes our refuge when we learn to trust him always and tell him everything. There's two parts to that. Trust him, tell him. Trust him, tell him. Trust him, tell him. How does God become our refuge? Trust him always, tell him everything. Now for those who would say, well, God is already our refuge, so why are you suggesting that he needs to become what he already is? I, I understand that can be difficult, it can sound confusing. Here's the way I would answer that. There is a difference between positional truth and situational perspective. By virtue of our position in Christ, Scripture says we are holy, we are secure, we are righteous, we are saved, we are loved, we are forgiven, and so much more. All of that is true by virtue of our position in Christ. Our context does not change that. Our feelings do not change that. If you are born again, you are who God says you are, you have what God says you have, and situations do not take away from any part of that. That is positional truth. Situational perspective is how we perceive reality based on what's happening around us. When everything is going well, it's very easy to look at that list of everything God says we have and everything it's describing of us and say, yes, I feel secure, I feel loved, I feel safe, I feel forgiven. It's easy in, in those moments, but when our situation falls apart, our perception changes and it often distorts our view of reality. All of a sudden, the things that we 
have known, the things that we have amen, the causes that we have championed, the, the verses that we have underlined in our Bibles, when everything begins to go wrong, all of a sudden those things don't seem like they feel as though they're true anymore. There's a difference between positional truth and situational perspective. Tom Elliff, a name very familiar to Sherwood, shared a quote a couple of years ago in a conference. It, it was one that just kind of grabbed me in all the right ways. Here's what he said. In case of emergency, your rehearsed response will be your first response. In case of emergency, your rehearsed response will be your first response. Said a little bit differently, what you practice is what you will do. When we establish the right habits in times of calmness, then we will employ the right habits in times of crisis. The issue is, what are the habits that we're establishing? How are we running to God in everyday situations, not just when war breaks out in Israel, not just when a crisis hits our family, not just when a death of a loved one occurs, but how are we building in the habits in times of calmness so that we act in the right ways in times of crisis? Now look back at the beginning of our key truth. God becomes our refuge when we learn to trust him always. If you were to put Psalm 62 and Proverbs 3 side by side, they are companion text in the sense that they share a similar subject matter and they also point in the same direction. Here's what I mean by that. What are we to do? Notice this in your notes. Psalm 62, trust in him. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord. When are we to trust in him? Psalm 62, at all times. Proverbs 3, in all your ways. How are we to trust in him? Psalm 62, pour out your heart before him. Proverbs 3, with all your heart. What is our incentive? Psalm 62, God is a refuge for us. Proverbs 3, he will make your path straight. Both texts begin with this same command, trust in the Lord. And it may sound simple, but it is not necessarily easy. I'm going to give a gross overgeneralization to maybe help people understand why it can be so difficult for us to trust in God at all times, and especially those who've been blessed to live in or grow up in America. So track with me for just a moment. Lord willing, this is going to make sense. Here's the first statement I want to give, and I don't know if this is in your notes, but just an idea, just track with me. Abundance breeds independence. Abundance breeds independence. Now, whether or not you feel like you are wealthy or whether or not you feel like you have abundance, let me just say, based on the standards of the world, we have abundance in America. Now, I want you to pick up that last word, abundance breeds independence. Well, independence promotes self-will. 
For those who have grown up in America, for those who have been here for any period of time, chances are some of those cultural pieces of the American dream have probably rubbed off. As Americans, we pride ourselves in freedom and independence and some version of the American dream. We have been taught many times since childhood that if we work hard and put our mind to it, we can achieve our dreams. And There's nothing wrong with working hard and setting goals and trying to achieve dreams, but there is an unintended consequence that comes with the American spirit. When you're taught that you can do anything, you grow up believing it all depends on you. Let that sink in for just a moment. When you're taught you can do anything, you grow up believing everything depends on you. If it's going to happen, I have to make it happen. If I want it, I have to go get it. If I can dream it, I can do it. The self-help industry has made billions of dollars on the idea you can do it yourself. Now, I'm not saying hard work and dreams or any of those things are necessarily bad. I'm a pretty ambitious guy myself. But here's what God shows me almost daily, sometimes hour by hour. He keeps showing me that he can drop me in a situation where my idea of control evaporates in a moment. Control is an illusion. And the moment we find ourselves in that situation, all of a sudden, everything changes. And it doesn't have to be, again, something like a war breaking out in Israel. All it takes is a routine doctor's visit and all of a sudden, everything changes. All it takes is a loved one dying, and suddenly, everything changes. All it takes is a company downsizing, and suddenly, everything changes. For us right now, all it takes is missiles being fired from thousands of miles away, and all of a sudden, everything changes. At one moment, you can go from feeling hopeful and optimistic, and in the very next moment, you feel helpless and you feel lost. Life has a way of dropping us in situations of varying degrees and levels so that along the way we become painfully aware that control is an illusion. And here's the part that bothers us. We don't like the idea that everything we've worked hard for can be taken by something we can't predict or changed by something that we can't avoid are ruined by something that we can't control. So think about that for just a moment. As humans, we crave control. Society says, you can do it yourself. And scripture says, do not depend on your own understanding, but trust me in all of your ways. Is it any wonder that it's hard for us to figure out what to do in those moments when everything around us and in us is trying to clamor for control. And he says, that's not for you. Trust in me with all of your ways. We have to learn how to practice trusting in God even when we think we're still in control. 
We have to learn how to practice the right habits of, God, it's got to be you. God, I cannot do it myself. God, give me gentle and merciful and gracious reminders that I need to trust in you at all times. Trusting God is not the absence of effort. Oh, please hear me. Trusting God is not the absence of effort. It's recognizing our limitations and submitting our efforts to his complete control. The Hebrew word, For trust, it means to rely on someone for security, to cling to them, to set one's hope and one's confidence upon. So ask the question, when should we trust in God? When should we cling to God? When should we set our hope and confidence in God? Psalm 62 says, at all times. Proverbs 3 says, in all your ways. That that means we are to trust him with our soul, with our future, with our family, with our needs, with our finances, with our fears. We are called to trust God when we think we're in control and when we know we are not in control. We are called to trust God when everything looks like it's calm and when everything has now broken out in a crisis. We are to trust him at all times and in all of our ways. Trusting God has to be practiced again and again. Not just when the situation seems bad, but always your rehearsed response will be your first response. So now let's look on the second half of our big idea. God becomes our refuge when we learn to trust him always and tell him everything. Trust in him at all times, old people. Here it is, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The phrase, pour out your heart before him. Uh, This word heart, it, it is defined as our inner self, our inclination, our disposition, as well as our will. The heart is a very general term to describe all of who we are. We're to pour out all of who we are before him. That is nothing hidden, nothing left, nothing kept. Notice how complete this picture is. Inner self is personality. It's what makes you unique. Inclination, that's our feelings and our tendencies. Disposition is our attitude as well as our behavior. And will is the part of the mind that makes those decisions. Put all of that together. We are to trust God with who we are, how we feel, what we think, what we do, and any potential decisions we're going to make in the future. And we're to do that at all times, and we are to do that in every situation. Does that describe you this morning? Let's make it really practical. Are you struggling with fear and anxiety and uncertainty today? When you read the headlines, what's going on in the world, does it fill you with fear? Or are you looking at it through the lens of trusting God and telling him everything? We can trust him because he is trustworthy. Trust him with our families, our future, our finances, our feelings, everything. Trust him, tell him. Trust him, tell him. How does God become our refuge in a practical sense, in a real, on the field, in the moment, in real time sense? God becomes our refuge when we learn to trust him always and tell him everything. 
First Peter chapter five, verse seven, it says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I, I want you to notice between 1 Peter 5, 7 and Psalm 62, verse 8, I want you to notice one key word, him. Him. Pour out your heart before him. Casting all your anxiety on him. There is nothing wrong with sharing your heart and your burden with other people, but they cannot become the refuge for us. God has to be our refuge. Making someone or something our refuge other than God, is leaning on the wrong area of support. Friends are great, but they are not our refuge. Counselors can be helpful, but they are not our refuge. Positions in career and finances, they're necessary, but they are not our refuge. Over time, God seems to have a way of allowing the circumstances of life to work in such a way that it will shake us free of any place we are running to refuge other than to him. Please hear me. You'll never see God as your refuge if you constantly run elsewhere for help. In Isaiah's day, the leaders of Israel tried to find security in areas other than God. And God rebuked them in Isaiah 28, 15 for, listen to this, making a lie your refuge and falsehood your hiding place. God alone is our refuge. Now, I want us to go back for just a moment to the first seven verses of Psalm 62. I want you to see the way that David is building into this idea. It only has to be God. Here's what he says, starting verse 1 and following. I'm just reading. I hope your Bibles are open. It says, my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a, a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, and inwardly they curse Selah. Verse 5. My soul wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Only God is my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Here's the thing. When David goes back, here's the words you find. God only he only, God only, he only, my refuge is God. There, there is no alternate source of refuge. There, there's no backup plan. Only God can be our refuge because he is my salvation. He is my rock. He is my stronghold. He is my glory rest. He is my rock of strength and he is my refuge. That's what David is saying. That's why only God can be the one that we run to in times of crisis. Now, seeing God in that way, knowing God as our refuge, enables us to have what I could only describe as a settled confidence in times of crisis. It's not confidence in us. It is confidence in him. God never fails. 
There is not a situation that this world will ever see that is stronger than God. There is no person, there is no country, there is no group, there is no cause that is greater than God. That is why Solomon could declare the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That's why Paul could say, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's why Jesus could say in calmness to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Only God makes the insecure secure. And how does it happen? He becomes our refuge when we learn to trust him always and tell him everything. Trust him, tell him. Trust him, tell him. Trust him, tell him. Last week, many people began making connections between the Hamas invasion of Israel and the prophecies of Gog invading Israel found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Are we seeing the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39 right now. As honest as I can tell you, I don't know. But listen, are there some strong correlations? As honest as I can tell you, yes. After rereading those chapters again multiple times this last week, can I tell you the part that stood out to me the most is the exalted position of God in the midst of invasion. It says, that, and whenever that part of God's prophetic timeline comes into play, it is God who allows it, it is God who controls it, and it is God who is using it for his purposes. So if you want to, I encourage you, read Ezekiel 38 and 39, but let me just kind of bring you in on what it is I'm describing. In Ezekiel 38, 16, God said to the enemies of Israel, listen, it shall come about in the last days, listen, that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. Did you get that? Even when the armies come, they come at the discretion of God. Then God continues in verse 20 and following by saying, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. Verse 23, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. God goes on talking to the enemies of Israel in Ezekiel 39, 1 and following by saying, Behold, I am against you. I will turn you around. I will strike your bow. You will fall on the mountains of Israel. You will fall on the open fields for I have spoken. I will send fire to those who inhabit the coastlines so that they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, it goes on to say, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Even in the midst of war and invasion, we have a God who is so strong that he is saying, when it happens, I allowed it. When it happens, I am using it. When it happens, I will be magnified among the nations. We need to remember what happens 
according to Scripture? Are these the events that are currently unfolding according to Ezekiel's prophecy? I'm not sure, but here's what we know without a doubt. Jesus said in Matthew 24, when asked about the signs of the time, the end of the age and his second coming, here's what he said in verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Stop there. See that you are not frightened. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. He goes on from there to talk about the fact people will fall away from truth. They will betray one another. They will hate one another. False prophets will mislead many. Lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. And he tells us those things have to happen before the end comes. And he compares it to birth pains. Listen, listen. The closer a woman gets to giving birth, the stronger and more frequent the contractions become. The closer we get to the coming of Jesus, the stronger and more frequent these events will become. Here's what we're called to do. Keep your eyes on Jesus and be ready. Now is the time that we stay focused on the mission that the call to the believer is not freak out when you see these things happen. The call is look up because Jesus is coming our way. The call is to live on mission. The call for us is to be prayed up. The call is to get the, the gospel to the nations. The, the call for us is to be prepared. When people look out and they say over this last week that there have been multiple flyers that were dropped throughout Gaza saying, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming in order to get people to a place of safety. The Word of God has been dropping flyers for thousands of years saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Now is the time to get to a place of safety. If you do not know where you stand before your Creator, do not walk out of this room today in that same position. If you don't know what's happening with your children, do not rest until you are praying over them. If you don't know what's happening with your loved ones, now is the time. The closer we get to the coming of Christ, the more these things will increase and the worse they will become. We have a call of God not to hide our heads in the sand, but to live like people who know the creator of this universe. We got good news to be able to share. So here's my encouragement to you today. Trust him and tell him. It doesn't matter what you're walking through. It might have nothing to do with what's going on in Israel. But the same principles apply. Trust him. Tell him. Trust him. Tell him. Only God can make the insecure secure. So here's how I want us to close out this service. I want us to close it out trusting him and telling him. Again, I don't know where everybody's at. I don't know what we're all walking through. But I know that right now the eyes of the world are looking at what's taking place in Israel, in the Middle East. There's insecurity and anxiousness and fear that is creeping in. Trust him and tell him. There's going to be some specific pieces that we can 
bring to God in prayer because God is very clear in his word about how we can pray for the nation of Israel. Pray for peace in Jerusalem and in Israel. Pray for the protection of innocent people in Israel. Pray that God will reveal himself and fulfill his eternal purposes in Israel. Trust him. Tell him. I'm going to ask you if you would, just bow with me as we close out. Our pastors and pastors' wives will be finding places at the front. Our band is going to be coming forward. We're just singing a final song of invitation. And we're asking God to give us his perspective. I'm not sure, again, of, of the pieces that maybe have gripped your heart where fear is sinking in. But the application of the word is that we are to trust him always and tell him everything. That's how we practically live in a state of making God our refuge. Today, if you do not know where you stand before God, I'm begging you today to come talk to one of these pastors or pastor's wives. Today, if you are needing prayer and you're, you're just overwhelmed with what's happening, you need, you need prayer support to come alongside of you, come and talk to one of these pastors or pastor's wives. They're also going to be counselors as well. I encourage you today, bring your burdens before him. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask today that you would allow our heart, our focus, our mind to be upon you. Lord God, would you calm anxious hearts? Would you direct us back to what it looks like to walk in faith and in confidence with you? Lord, may you allow the, the body of Christ to beautifully serve this world at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing? The altar is open.